Science Initiative at the Alzheimer's Association is going to be there as a keynote along with myself. So again, that's April 10th. That's a Tuesday. And um, that's through the Alzheimer's Association. And you can just go to alzheimerspeaks.com and and get some more information on that. Now, today's show, we're going to be talking with, um, like I said, Dr. Elliot Goldstein, who is with uh, Promise um, Neuroscience. And he is going to be talking about a really highly awaited uh, phase three um, clinical trial. And he's also going to talk about the challenges in Alzheimer's drug development. And we've all heard, you know, some of the failures, and um, he'll talk a little bit more uh, with us about that. But prior to uh, getting into that conversation, I just do have to um, do a couple of shout-outs to some organizations that are dear to my heart. Um, The Women's Alzheimer's Movement, which is Maria Schreiber's, her Move for the Minds events are now on schedule, and you can go to thewomensalzheimersmovement.org to get more information information on that. Um, the uh, American Senior Magazine, which is a lifestyle magazine for, for seniors with topics ranging from nostalgia to health and wellness, some great interviews and spotlights on notable older Americans. They have some games in there. It's large print. It's just really a nice, nice magazine. And um, then the, the um, calendar card system, which is a memory system, um, also um, they, they uh, have the directory for the memory cafe um, in, the, in the U.S. And so you can go to memorycafedirectory.com. That's memorycafedirectory.com. And you'll be able to see the free list of all the memory cafes in the U.S. And again, that is put on by calendar cards, which you might want to check out um, their memory system as well. And then the last one I want to give a shout out to, I'm really excited about this one, is called the Purple Table Reservations. And you can just go to purpletables.com to get more. But there is a gal who has put this together so that people can find kind of dementia-friendly environments when they go to a restaurant and they're doing some training and they've got an app and um, they're just starting up. So if you know of restaurants that want to participate, um, please direct them to purpletables.com. So let me get back to our guest today. Again, we're going to be talking with Dr. Elliot Goldstein and um, Elliot brings a really unique track record um, because he has dealt in the clinical regulations and the commercial development of new pharmaceuticals. He spent over 14 years on drug development um, all around the world, um, including being the head of clinical uh, research and development here in the United States. He has also held positions as Senior Vice President of Strategic product, um, Product Development Chief Operating Officer and um, Chief Medical Officer and also President and CMO in the pharma industry. So he's just extremely talented and well-respected, and we are thrilled to have Dr. Elliot Goldstein with us. Welcome. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, um, before we get started on our track of questions, it's going to be more clinical related. I always like to do a little touchy-feely question first, and that is, you know, um, Dr. Goldstein, have you been personally touched by family or friends with dementia? Yes, absolutely. Like most of us, especially those baby boomers like myself, I mean, we're growing up in a generation where this really is the number one, you know, medical challenge facing us. So I have a brother-in-law, uh, interesting uh, story, though. Uh, my wife is French from France, and he's a police detective in Strasbourg and was um, retired when he was 65 and diagnosed uh, with uh, Alzheimer's about two or three years later and lived with the disease and, you know, all the attendant uh, uh, issues, as many of your listeners know, uh, for about 10, 12 years uh, and passed away when he was, when he was 78. Um, and, and, and for me, you know, you can read about the experience and as a medical doctor, of course, understand it, but it's really not the same as actually living through it with a family member and the impact on the whole entourage, not just 
the patient, of course, or the direct family members, but the extended family members um, is, was something I really had to learn about by seeing it personally. The impact on my wife was, uh, uh, you know, quite devastating. She was very close to her older brother. So, yes, I've seen it. And, you know, as, um, as, as the president and CEO of a company focused almost exclusive, well, focused on neurodegenerative disease, but with our priority focus on Alzheimer's disease, um, I have conversations almost every day with potential investors, supporters of the company, but really they're, they're just family members like myself, you know, who have brothers, sisters, acquaintances, friends, favorite actor or whatever, whom they know, you know, either directly or by their reputation. And it's, it's very devastating for all of us. So, um, you know, finding hope on the horizon is absolutely essential. And hopefully we'll talk about that today because there is hope on the horizon. Yeah, there's there's been so many um, announcements lately of, you know, failed um, trials and companies pulling out of the industry in terms of, of research. And so, uh, you know, the the excitement has kind of changed to real anticipation and frustration of what's happening. You know, are we are we are we going to be moving forward with this because the need I think is becoming more and more prevalent to the public. Um, people knew it existed before. I mean, even five years ago, um, the awareness of, of the devastation of, of this disease and um, the impact that it's having, not only on families, but on society at large and, and commercial business right. and our economics as a whole. Um, it's, you know, it's getting a lot more attention and so, you know, I want you to talk a little bit about your your company and and what you guys are up to. Sure, that uh, I'd be delighted to do that. Um, just as an introduction, though, before we talk about Promise Neurosciences, mm-hmm. you did mention you know a lot of the failures and it's been a frustrating area. Um, my mm-hmm. experience in over 35 years of drug development had the wonderful opportunity actually to work in you know areas of serious unmet need uh, in Parkinson's disease. Um, I worked on the first new drug for transplant, uh, cyclosporin, and now we're working on Alzheimer's disease, probably the area of the greatest unmet need in chronic disease today, um, ahead of cancers, which are being resolved, not completely, but but to a good extent. So, you know, in, in the pharmaceutical industry in general, um, it, it, we build bridges that collapse. Think if you were in an engineering company, and nine out of ten bridges you built could never actually support traffic and work. Well, that's about how the, you know, the rate of success in drug development for every product that enters the clinic, generally speaking, across all therapeutic areas, so there are some differences, but generally speaking, only one in ten products that after years of preclinical research actually get to the clinic, only one in ten or so actually make it to the market and only one in four of those one in ten so one in forty are actually profitable so what does that really mean in terms of decision making and how the sort of ethos you need in the company and then i'll get to talking about our company in a second but it's really to learn from failure uh to embrace and understand why these bridges collapse why there's so much difficult obviously if of nature and medicine and pathology were that easy to dominate it would have been done already uh, but in chronic mm-hmm. degenerative diseases, that's not the case. Um, so there has been a lot of failure, but we've learned. My experience in chronic, the theory of chronic diseases, like autoimmune disorders, uh, transplant uh, research was another area, uh, Parkinson's disease, I've mentioned those, and now Alzheimer's disease. Um, my experience is it takes about two decades of, call it trial and error. It's a little more directed than trial and error, but, you know, of testing, of failing, of learning from those failures, and eventually starting to see some positive results, which is happening now, and we'll talk about those later in, in, in the call, I, I, I would hope. We're starting to see the way forward, and certainly we've learned what not to do, what to avoid. So um, that's just sort of a general introduction on sort of how, you know, how at least in our company and, across, and many others to you know, approach failure and, and just the difficulty of you know, uh, discovering and developing new medicines. Um, in, in, in the case of Promise Neurosciences, uh, my business partner and I, Eugene Williams, he's the executive chairman. He's based in Boston, Cambridge, Massachusetts. I'm based in San Francisco. All of our research and development is done under worldwide exclusive license from the Brain Center at the University of British Columbia, one of the world's leading brain research centers, uh, certainly one of the top three or four in, in, in my estimation. In any case, um, 
a few years ago in 2014, um, early 2015, my uh, business partner, Gene Williams from Harvard and I, we heard a gentleman who's now our chief scientific officer, Professor Neil Cashman, speak at a, a medical conference. And we were just absolutely stunned by the quality of the, you know, the scientific approach he was taking. Um, but here's sort of a lesson you learn already, in, in, especially in biotech, um, you know, smaller, smaller pharmaceutical companies. Um, and the better the technology, the worse or the more demanding this problem is, and that's a little counterintuitive, but it, it, it's the following, it's the inability to focus. So we learned that the basic discovery technology that exists at the University of British, that exists at the University of British Columbia and was developed by our now chief scientific officer, Professor Neil Katchman, um, can be applied to multiple neurodegenerative diseases, in particular Alzheimer's disease, which as you know, accounts for about 80% of dementias, but also there's a host of other neurodegenerative diseases that also seem, all seem to have a common underlying mechanism, and we'll talk about that in, in, in a second. So the technology we have at the company that we've licensed under worldwide exclusive license from the University of British Columbia um, allows us to identify targets or sites on misfolded proteins. So these are proteins that are normal and natural in the body, in particular in the brain in this case. But when they misfold or take on an abnormal shape, they become toxic and kill neurons. Um, so there's an underlying and a common mechanism behind Alzheimer's disease, frontotemporal dementia, Lewy body dementia, or Lewy body disease, Parkinson's disease, repetitive head trauma. We now know, as stated by Eliezer Maslia, the new head of the National Institute of Aging, he stated this at a, a scientific conference in Boston last year, that there are multiple neurodegenerative diseases caused by misfolded forms of different proteins that have normal function. And that's what our company focuses on. Um, now, the reason why I said there's a bit of a blessing and a curse in this technology is because it can be applied to so many. I just listed half a dozen or so different serious, you know, uh, deadly neurodegenerative diseases. The company in the past was focusing across the board on all of them. And in biotech, that just doesn't work. Because biotech, we're small companies in general, so we have less resource even than the large pharma companies, which means you have to exquisitely focus your technology on one area only and move to the next. Um, let me give you an example from daily life, okay? Um, okay. The technology we have could, could be used to identify um, product drugs, and we'll talk about how that works, but identify drugs for Alzheimer's disease, Parkinson's disease, frontal temporal dementia, etc. all these different serious neurodegenerative diseases. So why not work on all of them because you don't have the resource? That's a little bit like deciding you're going to have six children right away. You're a young man, but you only have the money to support one. So how do you do that? <laughs> well, you've got multiple choices. You can give a, starve all six of them, right? Give each child mm -hmm. a little bit sort of spread your resources and then watch them all wither, quite frankly, um, or choose the one that's the most promising, the brightest, or whatever your criteria are, and feed and support that one. But what about the other five? Or what's the real answer? Don't have six in one shot. Have one first, nurture that one, take him or her through, you know, whatever development needs, then go to the next one. That's exactly what you've got to do in drug development when you're a small company and you have a technology that's very powerful and can be applied to multiple disease states. So we chose very deliberately when we relaunched the company in 2015, and this is a bit of a long story, but I think it's important. When we relaunched the company on July 1st in 2015, um, we made the decision as managers to focus selectively and exclusively on Alzheimer's disease, the largest unmet need in chronic disease today in, 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 in humans. So that's what we did, and that's allowed us in two years to go from basic research and ideas, the technology we have, to having a handful of exciting new products. The lead product, called PMN310, these are antibodies, um, is now moving forward to go into the clinic in 2019. But all because the technology is outstanding, but also we focused it on one unmet need, not half a dozen different diseases, uh, which would have eaten up all our resources and not allowed us to progress. So, so that's just sort of the first thing about biotech and promise. Is, and part of my job, quite frankly, is to real, you know, keep the research and uh, development team relentlessly focused on this one objective, and that's knocking out a root cause of Alzheimer's disease. Um, 
So perhaps, Laurie, I can say a little bit of amyloid beta and what we've learned about it and why it's not a boogeyman but actually a great target. Um, but we just okay. need to know the right, the right form. That's what we're specializing. Promise, by the way, the name stands for protein misfolding. Okay? Mm-hmm. Um, proteins are ubiquitous. They're in the body. They do all sorts of things. They're enzymes. They hold our bodies together. It's structural proteins. Um, and they kind of make everything work. And, and without them, there'd be no life. Uh, so we say protein, most people think about proteins as sort of what they eat, you know, eating lots of protein mm-hmm. is healthy. But there are so many different forms of proteins, and they're absolutely essential parts of the body in multiple respects. Uh, so that's just the first thing. When I say protein, that's what I'm talking about, not just alimentary, you know, food, foods that you eat uh, that are made up mm-hmm. of proteins, fats, and, you know, and uh, carbohydrates, right? Um, so the original hypothesis about Alzheimer's disease, which arose in the late 80s, early 90s, and was sort of a follow-on from heart disease, was all about, uh, at that time, um, atherosclerotic plaques, so plaque made up of lipid fats, you know, all those horrible things we're not supposed to eat. As you know, they can clog arteries and kind of just choke them, right, so the oxygen doesn't get through, and the organs that should be uh, supplied by those arteries suffer. Well, it was figured, thought also at the time, that the plaque form of amyloid beta, and we'll talk about this, there's three different forms of amyloid beta, only one of which is toxic. That's what we've learned. But the plaque form is like a waxy, sticky substance, and on autopsies in individuals who've died with Alzheimer's disease, it's ubiquitous. You see a lot of it all over the place with heavy concentrations in, in areas where memory is, you know, short-term memory is stored, like an area called the hippocampus, but you can find heavy deposits of plaque so it was believed there was a very close relationship between also the development of Alzheimer's disease and the development of plaque. Um, we now know that about 25% of autopsies of individuals who died from anything but Alzheimer's disease, we also see significant amounts of plaque. Um, but at the time, it was believed in the late 80s and 90s, the plaque was somehow sort of, it, it's not inside the cells, it's outside the cells. And so it was kind of strangling, pressing down on the nerves and causing them to uh, ultimately to die. Well, we now know that that's not really the case. Plaque is pretty well inert. In fact, potentially serves a positive function. So there's three forms of amyloid beta. That's what we've learned from the 20 years of so-called failed trials. Of the three forms, they are monitor, monomer, which is the single strand, like a string of pearls. Um, mm-hmm. And there's a form called oligomer. A monomers of the amyloid beta is a very sticky protein. And when you put it in a Petri dish or, um, or in the lab, monomer single strands they'll start clumping together they'll just stick together and so you'll have two three four ten fifteen strands just kind of aggregated stuck together in clumps those are called oligomers oligo just means more than one so monomer mono one strand oligomer more strands all that's normal and then those strands twist up and bunch together and aggregate and form plaque well fibrils or fibrils and fibrils make up plaque. And they're insoluble. They're sort of sticky like waxy, so they won't dissolve in liquid. Okay? The only form that's toxic, the oligomers, unfortunately, have a tendency to misfold. This happens. All proteins can do this. Uh, normally, they're eliminated from the body. But if they misfold and they're not eliminated, then they start to spread through the brain like prions. Um, and they destroy neurons and spread through the brain from areas of memory to other parts of the brain. On average, it takes about 15 years, we've learned. It's actually 17, according to the University of Washington, for these misfolded toxic oligomers to kill at least 10 billion of the 100 billion neurons you have in your brain, and then first symptoms occur, and that's called mild cognitive impairment. So really put simply, what we've learned is there's three forms of amyloid beta, only one form is the bad actor. So if your product doesn't target selectively and specifically that bad toxic form, which I've called the misfolded oligomer, just to use a lot of fancy words, but if you don't target that form, your product's not going to work. If it targets plaque, plaque is relatively inert and not toxic. And in fact, products that have targeted plaque are associated with brain swelling, or it's called edema, um, which comes from breaking up the plaque. Um, so... Targeting plaque's not a good idea, although most of the original products did because it was believed that plaque was one of the drivers or root causes of the disease. We now know that that's not true. Other products targeted monomer. In the sense, if you could knock out all the monomer, which ultimately becomes oligomer, then maybe, you know, you would do some saving there. That doesn't work as well. There's so much monomer in the brain that by having a product or drug that targets the monomer, we call it target distraction. You're just 
you know, fighting in the wrong neighborhood, if you like. So you need a product to target or products that target selectively and exclusively only these toxic, misfolded forms. That's what our technology allows us to do. It allows us to uh, identify sites or areas on the misfolded oligomers that we can attach an antibody to and knock it out. And that's what we do. It's so selective that those antibodies don't bind to plaque and don't bind to monomer. So all of the product is exclusively and selectively directed at the toxic disease-causing form or bad actor form of amyloid beta. And that's specifically what our company does and our lead product PMN310 um, has passed all our you know criteria for selectivity has all the right binding does it, 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 it can block the toxicity of these uh, toxic forms it can block their spread in, in um, brain materials from Alzheimer's patients so now we're in the process of initiating the manufacturing and scale up and all that you have to do to get into the clinic and we anticipate having our first clinical trials in 2019 Okay. So with um, your clinical trials in, in 2019, and I mean, that's, that's going to be here before we know it, the way I, I right. you know, still can hear my mom saying, you know, the older you get, the faster the time goes. And <laughs> I assure him, I yeah. sure I'm feeling yeah. that uh, since we're in April already of, of 2018, I can't, I just can't believe it. Um do you know uh, in terms of who you're going to be targeting? Because, uh, you know, a lot of times um, I- I'm out in the field, you know, talking with people all the time, yeah. and they say a lot of times it's, it's you know, it isn't their demographic specific, specifically. Have you guys determined who your, who your demographic is going to be for your trial? Yes. Um, we, we still have to translate that into very specific scientific terms and discuss with the regulators. Uh, but like um, I think most experts in the field and in chronic diseases in general, you really want to address your patients as early as possible. So we wanted mm-hmm. to uh, uh, initially recruit patients with, you know, who are in the early phase of Alzheimer's disease um, where, you know, we've got mild cognitive impairment, if you like, but still relatively good function. Uh, so, yes, we would be looking at, at early stage. Now, there's one other group of also symptomatic Alzheimer's patients that we'll be addressing in a different set of trials. I just thought I'd mention it, though, not patients with trisomy 21 or Down syndrome. Um, now, as, as you may know, and some of your listeners may know, um, these individuals, in, uh, completely aside from the mental retardation, uh, you know, that goes with trisomy mm-hmm. 21 or Down syndrome, they develop a very early onset Alzheimer's symptomatology um, that progresses rapidly. You can even diagnose some patients in their teens, and by the age 60, 65, over three-quarters have full-blown Alzheimer's disease. And the reason behind that, which is further support for addressing amyloid beta as a target, is they have, you know, Down syndrome is trisomy 21. Those patients have three copies those subjects, I should say, those people have three copies of chromosome 21. Normally, we have two copies of every chromosome. We have 23 pairs of chromosomes. They have an extra chromosome uh, 21. Well, guess what gene codes on, on chromosome 21? The gene for amyloid precursor protein. That's the gene that actually allows to create amyloid. They've got an extra copy of the gene, i.e. from birth, they're born with massive amounts of amyloid beta in the brain, so just have a much greater propensity for this to miss, for these their oligomers of amyloid beta to misfold and kill neurons. So that's a, a separate group, but it's it's exactly the same pathology, if you like, as Alzheimer's disease because of the, you know, the, the destruction caused by these toxic forms of amyloid beta. But for, you know, for, for what I'll call standard Alzheimer's disease, not in the Down syndrome, we'll be going for early, mm-hmm. or, or, or early patients. Now, not early onset, patients who have you know, early forms of the disease, right, who aren't too advanced. Mm-hmm. Okay, great. Well, that's, that's exciting on the Down syndrome side, too. I, I um, have worked with a lot of companies um, who deal specifically with that. In fact, I, I used to be in that industry um, before I landed in this space and before I was in real estate for 25 years. So yes. I kind of started oh, out in, in healthcare. There still have a lot of connections and that's a, a common conversation um, with people. So that'll be uh, both of those targets yeah. will be, will be wonderful. Wonderful to yeah. see. Now, um yeah, um, no, absolutely. And I just mentioned it because not many people are aware, you know, people mm-hmm. aren't you know, familiar with uh, trisomy 21 
uh, or Alzheimer's disease aren't really aware that you can have similar symptomatology. And, but that, that, that was the reason. It's a, it's a genetic reason. Now, you mentioned early on that I was, uh, uh, I was going to say something about positive phase three data and, uh, mm-hmm. and the learnings from, you know, all the past trials. And, you know, why are we so optimistically excited about the future? Well, up until now, all of the drugs targeting beta amyloid, mainly plaque, have failed except for one. So we're going to talk about that one, which really gives mm-hmm. us hope. Um, when you look back at the profiles of these different drugs, from what I said earlier on, your listeners could tell me, well, if your drug targeted only plaque, would it work? No, it can't because plaque is not killing neurons. We now know that. Well, what if your drug targeted only monomer, the, sing- you know, the single-stranded form of amyloid beta? Some of the products only do that, like uh, a drug called solanezumab from Lilly. It failed in three, mm-hmm. three repeated trials in phase three. It had a mild effect, but it was never enough. And that's because it's impossible to knock out all the monomers so it doesn't misfold or become, you know, become toxic. Um, so what, what's the one drug that actually is, is really offering hope? It's a product called Aducanumab. Almost all these products end with the word MAB, by the way. MAB stands for monoclonal <laughs> antibodies. They're antibodies. Uh, yeah, not MAD, but MAB, N-A-B is in force, just monoclonal antibody, which means an antibody specifically directed against something. That's all. Mm-hmm. Um, so aducanumab um, targets two forms of amyloid beta, hence its, six, or its apparent success, but also one of its issues. It targets plaque, which we now know we don't want to do, or we so don't want to do certainly as a major effect, um, but it also targets these toxic misfolded forms, what I call the toxic oligomers. That's why it works. Now, it's the only product ever you know, in drug development, in Alzheimer's disease, to have shown the maintenance of an effect, slowing or stopping cognitive decline in early and mild cognitive impairment patients for three years. I'll just repeat that again. They have three years of follow-up now. And the patients mm-hmm. who are on the highest dose of the product, which is about 10 milligrams per kilogram, all antibodies are always given as infusions, you know, um, intravenous 30-minute, uh, one-to-one-hour uh, infusion. That's the way you have to give antibodies because you can't eat, you know, take them orally because they'll be destroyed in, 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 you know, in the digestive system. Um, so um, given about once a month at a dose of 10 milligrams per kilogram of body weight, They've been able to show with Biogen's aducanumab that patients, either their cognitive decline, loss of cognitive function, in particular memory function, as measured by all the various tests you know, that have become standard, is either they've either been able to stop the decline or slow it very significantly compared to lower doses or placebo. So that's the good news. Um, now there's two large phase three trials running with Biogen's aducanumab. Biogen is a neuroscience company based in the Boston area and widely respected in the industry and in the expert community as a top-notch uh, neuro, you know, uh, neurology company. Uh, they've brought uh, tremendous uh, development to, to the area of multiple sclerosis, for example. Uh, they've just done a brilliant job in that area and are now focusing on Alzheimer's disease. Anyway, aducanumab, with three years of follow-up, been able to maintain the slowing or stopping of cognitive decline. This has never been seen before. So two large phase three trials are ongoing. My understanding, I can't speak for the company, of course, because I'm CEO of a different company, but, you know, um, very much, you know, laudatory uh, about Biogen. Um, we understand that their trials will be finished and the results will be available around mid-2020 maybe second quarter, mm-hmm. something like that. So that, that program could be approved uh, early 2021, for example. It's the first drug on the market that actually deals with the underlying cause. Now, here's the problem and why we think we'll have an advantage over aducanumab, which we'd love to see come to market because it's absolutely needed. And for those patients who respond to the treatment, there's nothing that performs like that so far. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's the good news. Now, I mentioned it, 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 uh, the product targets not only this toxic misfolded form, these toxic oligomers, which you want to target, but also targets plaque. That's its problem. All products associate, um, uh, that have been in drug development and that has failed or you know, where the testing has been stopped, all of those that uh, target plaque, bust up plaque, if you like, 
are associated or have been associated with uh, brain swelling. It's called neurovascular edema. Uh, it's also called mm-hmm. area E because you can see it on, um, on, on, on PET scans. Anyway, it's a sort of swelling. And edema is just the leakage of fluid out of blood vessels into the surrounding tissue. That's what edema is. Um, now, it's not a deadly side effect, but it occurred in about 35 to 55% of the patients in the aducanumab trials, depending on their uh, genetic profile and other factors. But say, just say 30 to 50% presented this, depending what subgroup were they, they were in. Now, um, what has to be done is when patients present this, uh, this side effect or adverse event is they have to be backed off the dose, either taken off the drug or back down to a lower dose, in which case they lose the efficacy. So that's, that's the challenge with this product. But in those patients who can take it, who don't develop the, um, the neurovascular edema, the brain swelling, and there are some methods to sort of reduce that, build the doses up slowly so the tolerability is better, and that's worked to some extent in the clinical trials. So it's manageable, but not for everybody. But uh, one could imagine that, um, you know, 40, 50% of patients uh, with a you know, proper diagnosis of early Alzheimer's disease could benefit from this product. Now, we've engineered our product our monoclonal antibody called PMN310. It's just the code name so that it targets exclusively and only the, uh, the, these toxic misfolded oligomers, not the plaque and not the monomer. Mm. So one is we should be able to get up to much higher doses because the, um, the brain swelling or neurovascular edema is a dose-limiting side effect of that. You, can, you, might, they can't, you, can't give it, you can't give more than 10 milligrams per kilogram body weight because then, you know, the, the side effect starts occurring at that dose. So, you, you know, that's the, that's the top dose. And as I mentioned, you know, a third to half the patients can't take it because of the side effect. But again, those who can, the results are, are frankly quite stunning and have never been seen before. So we now, you know, we've learned from all the failures in the, you know, half a dozen or so, billions of dollars spent to get back to the bigger picture, that the key, if you're working, you know, to, 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 to remove toxic amyloid beta is, Make sure your product doesn't target monomer. It's just targets a waste. It's, it's just normal and neutral, and you don't get any effect from that. Don't target plaque because it's also not toxic, and you can actually have side effects. Target selectively and exclusively the toxic form. A bit like hunting out a gang member in your neighborhood, you know. <laughs> just think about it. Um, if you could go in and blow up the whole neighborhood, you'll get the bad guy or bad girl or bad person, but you'll, you know, you'll have all this collateral damage. Um, you need a way to go in and find a well, what identifies this toxic gang member? You know, will they wear a red bandana or have a tattoo that's selective? Well, we find the tattoo, if you like, on the toxic misfolded forms of amyloid beta, and we make antibodies against only that form. So we don't knock out the whole neighborhood. We don't hit any of the good guys in the neighborhood, if I can use that expression, but selectively and specifically only knock out the bad guy. Um, and relatively speaking, there are very few of these toxic oligomers or toxic forms in the brain compared to the massive amounts of monomer and plaque. So you've got to go in extremely selectively. If not, you'll have no chance of having an effect. But that's taken 15 to 20 years of clinical research with various antibodies from different major pharmaceutical companies to have learned that because they all had very, you know, slightly different profiles targeting one of the forms and not the other and this sort of thing. And now we've learned that it's really this one misfolded form. And we've also learned that in other diseases like Parkinson's disease and Lewy body dementia, it's a misfolded toxic form of a protein called alpha-synuclein. It's a different protein than amyloid beta. It tracks into different parts of the brain, but in this case, it leads to Parkinson's disease. Misfolded toxic aggregated forms of a protein called tau lead to chronic traumatic encephalopathy, you know, the terrible dementia mm-hmm. that, that, that comes from repetitive head injury, uh, like from, uh, you know, head injuries in football, for example. Another, I'll just go to the last one, you can see there's quite a common sort of bad pathology going on in the brain, is a protein called TDP43, a big mouthful that stands for TAR DNA binding protein. doesn't mean it's a different protein again. So I talked about alpha-synuclein for Parkinson's disease. We talked about amyloid beta, toxic forms for Alzheimer's disease. We talked about misfolded forms of a protein, aggregated misfolded forms of tau, leading to chronic traumatic encephalopathy. And let's just go to the last bad actor in the brain. Um, it's just this TDP43 when it misfolds and aggregates um, both inside and outside cells, causes a different dementia called frontotemporal dementia, and also seems to be one of the root drivers of ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease. Now, 
why it's important to mention this <laughs> is because it would seem that there are multiple diseases, neurochronic, deadly neurodegenerative diseases related to toxic misfolded proteins spreading throughout the brain. They spread like prions, like, like, um, yeah. Um, so that's really important. And, and it, it, it just means that this sort of, if you take the cancer example, cancer cells, if you like, are basically cells that um, escape normal control over growth and division, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Different cells, different gene, gene types cause different cancers. But the fundamental bad event, if you like, is this escaping of control. Well, the fundamental bad event uh, in uh, many in these neurodegenerative diseases I mentioned is a mis- is a protein a normal protein that misfolds becomes toxic because it's not normal it's misfolded it starts to propagate through the brain um, and there's you know different proteins causing different diseases so um, we do actually have a, our discovery platform allows us to address all of these diseases because as I said. Before, right now, we're focusing exclusively on Alzheimer's because it's the area of biggest unmet need and, you know, the, the, the largest societal impact you could imagine, both in terms of behavior but also, you know, economy and just the health of our healthcare systems, if you like. Um, so, so, so that's the, the, the long story that's taken 20 years, and we've been able to benefit from all this learning and apply it now extremely selectively. Wow, that's I, I learned a lot today um, on this, oh, and it, it does sound um, and it does sound very very promising. And I think so many people are going to be excited too um, with with MCI um, that uh, they're they're going to want to be part of part of the trial if possible. Um, so w- let me ask you this with you because this will be a question I know people will will be asking me. Sure. Um, with with your trial, is it going to be limited to a certain area, or is it something that people can participate in around the country? Um, how will that How will that work? Yeah, um, well, it's early days to go into great detail because, as you know, the first mm-hmm. trial is, is basically a safety trial, right? Um, mm-hmm. In patients, we do all. We'll do, I'll do all of our trials in patients in Alzheimer's mm-hmm. disease. It's, it's the way to do it. So the first trial would be uh, a safety trial where we would give a single dose, and then it's called a single ascending dose. You know, you you increase the doses to see how well tolerated it is, and then you go to a multiple. You know, you give multiple doses and do something very similar. Uh, we'll be meeting with regulatory authorities. There's actually three territories we're looking at. Uh, mm-hmm. and, 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 and again, it's to take you inside our thing. Um, today, especially in large um, unmet need areas where there are a lot of patients, right, but also a lot mm-hmm. of competition for clinical trials like Alzheimer's disease, almost all the trials have to be large multi-center trials and often multinational as well. So the good mm-hmm. news for, for individuals who would participate, um, you could imagine that especially when we're doing our phase two trials in larger uh, patient pox, you know, numbers of patients, mm-hmm. they would be in multiple centers in North America and Europe most likely. Right now we're mm-hmm. looking at our first trial, um, our 2019 work, which is, I guess, you know, what people are most interested in. Um, we are looking to see, uh, we're looking at, sites potentially in the United States and several in several cities. I can't name the sites right now. We're just mm-hmm. looking into it in Canada and most probably England, the United Kingdom. Those would be our three okay. top territories for regulatory reasons and historical reasons and, you know, sort of things you learn about drug development, where to do it. But definitely we'll have a large presence in North America and, 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 and Europe as well. So I think it would be a good chance um, – <clears throat> you know, that there would be availability for some of your listeners uh, in various cities. And, of course, we'll communicate very openly and clearly, you know, as we, you know, progress towards the clinic and have the manufacturing and other pieces in place. We'll talk uh, publicly a lot more in detail about, you know, where the trials will be and how to, you know, how to eventually get, get into a trial or at least try and register and all that. Uh, that's very, trial recruitment is very important. And both both for the patients and their families, of course, but also, for, you know, for ourselves. So it's something we'll pay special attention to. Wonderful. Well, that's uh, that's very exciting. Um, we'll, we will definitely have our ear to the ground. And if you can uh, make sure that you notify me when that time comes, because um, uh, people are, I think, and, and maybe it's kind of that give and take, you know, with the failure and the pullout of certain drug companies. I think people are really um, 
reanalyzing a little bit more of, oh my gosh, we need these, you know, I, <laughs> I didn't know that they needed me, yeah. but we need them. Um, and I, I think it's being looked at a little bit differently now. And so I'm hoping that more people will choose to get involved in the trials, understanding, you know, you, you can't just assume someone else is going to do this work. You've got to, everybody yeah. has to partake in this. If we're going to really get to yeah. the crux of it, um, we, we need a lot of assistance with that. Yeah, having been, you know, managing clinical trials across multiple therapeutic areas, but generally chronic diseases, as we've mentioned, for, you know, 30-plus years, um, there's one of the things that's really important, I'm sure many of your listeners understand it, but getting into clinical trial is not just about, you know, getting potentially some new exciting drug, because you can also potentially be getting a low dose of it or a placebo or whatever, but most importantly, at first, is, you know, you get expert diagnosis and state-of-the-art care. Um, and, and so that's really important as well. Uh, and something, you know, that's really important to encourage the listeners to do, even not in the context of a clinical trial. Now, my, my, my specialty is an endocrinologist, but pituitary disease, neuroendocrinology is what I, I, I studied in my specialty training. And it's important to note that although 80% of dementias and cognitive disturbances of that type, approximately 80%, are Alzheimer's disease, there are many or several that aren't, uh, some of which that are, 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 are treatable, certain endocrine disorders, certain psychiatric disorders, as I'm sure you and your listeners have discussed before. So getting into a clinical trial really affords that sort of expert review and diagnosis. And so actually being reviewed for the clinical trial sometimes could be a positive thing um, if there's, you know, a, a, a treatment available for non-Alzheimer's uh, uh, syndrome that may look like Alzheimer's disease. So I think it really encourage listeners who have any doubt or concern to consult with, you know, a, a, a center in their, in their area, if possible, that's really well known for the centers that run clinical trials really have to be expert at diagnosis because obviously the idea is you want to include patients who have the disease you're studying and exclude patients, you know, have a differential diagnosis who don't have Alzheimer's disease. So I would encourage any listeners to make sure they're up to date uh, for themselves or their family members in seeing an expert center, potentially to get into a clinical trial, but even upstream of that, they get really excellent diagnosis and, you know, state-of-the-art therapy because that's what that's what occurs in a clinical trial. Mm-hmm. So that's my sort of yeah. one message to, to, to everybody just as, as, as a physician. Sure. Well, and, you know, at Alzheimer's Speaks, we've worked with um, some other trial companies in the past in terms of helping them market and stuff because we have, you know, the multiple platforms um, with, right. a, with a quite quite a large reach and um you know I'd be more than glad to talk with you um on that too offline if if that would help. Now do you foresee like, you know, in cancer patients they kinda have these cocktail treatments, you know, it's like, well we'll yeah. we're gonna tweak this a little bit to, you know, for you and well that didn't yeah. quite do it, so we're gonna tweak it a little that way. Do you see that happening um with uh medications in the future for dementia? Yeah, absolutely. Not so much tweaking, but um, let's just sort of think about the disease. Well, we know it takes about, uh, you need to lose about 10 to 10 billion neurons of your 100 billion before you get any clinical symptoms. Well, what what does that demonstrate, as as you and your readers know, or listeners know, the great plasticity of of, of, of the central nervous system or the brain? By plasticity, this is ability to adapt as, you know, as parts of it are dying or disappearing as it's losing cells, it is rather flexible and plastic is the word we use, which wasn't really believed very much about, you know, 30 or 40 years ago. was thought you sort of had the nerve cells you got and then you, you lose them, that was it. But we know the brain's very plastic. But what that really means is as the disease is developing, you have certain compensatory factors that are coming into play. Um, inflammation, for example, inflammation is, 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 is a natural physiological response to certain types of insults or injuries or aggression. Um, so you have sort of a low-grade inflammation and other adaptations going on while the disease is progressing. So, uh, so that's one thing. So you want to be able to get those back to normal, right? So that's sort of one mm-hmm. set of therapeutics you would need. Now, that's not the underlying disease. There you're sort of addressing the normal changes that the brain has had to do to adapt and try and sort of 
stay with it, if you like, for at least 10 billion neurons. And then, you know, then you start seeing symptoms. So there's a set of symptomatologies that could make sense. Um, second one is the, the current therapies on, on, on the market today, like Exelon and Memantine and, and others that are in development uh, called neurotransmission enhancers. Basically, if you think about your neurons like bridges all connecting up in your brain, but there's billions of them, well, neurotransmission enhancers push more traffic across the bridge. Right? That's what they do. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, the traffic on our neurons is either electrical or chemical. Um, and so that's another approach. However, what, if you think using my bridge analogy, the first thing you really want to do is stop the collapsing of the bridge, stop the dying of the neurons. Then add in, push more traffic across by like repaving the bridges, right? Um, at some point, mm-hmm. you're more traffic through a bridge that's collapsing. I mean, yes, you get six, nine, 12 months of, of some symptomatic help. And that's, that's a valuable and useful thing, as you and your listeners know, but it's very temporary and doesn't affect the underlying disease. So wouldn't the first thing to do be stabilize the bridges, stop them from collapsing, right? Then push more traffic mm-hmm. across. And also take care of some of these things that have developed over time as your brain sort of tried to fight it off as best it can and did a pretty good job for quite a while, i.e. anti-inflammatories and other drugs like that. So that would give me a cocktail of a principal disease-modifying medicine to stop the neuronal death, the dying and killing a neuron, which would be what aducanumab is doing from Biogen and what we're purporting to do and hopefully is a best-in-class drug is knock out in, you know, incapacitate these toxic neurons, uh, these toxic oligomers of amyloid beta that are killing neurons. In addition, add in when and where appropriate, a, you know, an enhancer that can push a bit more traffic through the neurons, i.e. can help the neurotransmission, and then add around that some anti-inflammatory or other drugs that could really, you know, help reduce some of the inflammation and other aspects that have developed while the body's been trying to combat this disease. That would be sort of my prototypical three-drug cocktail. But you've got to stop the bridges from collapsing first, save the neurons, and then help them, you know. But um, so you're absolutely right. I know of very few chronic diseases, uh, unless it's like a disease where you're missing a specific enzyme and you replace it. Um, And even then, often there's been so much adaptation from the body, like in diabetes. You know, you replace insulin, but you have so many other problems going on. So, yeah, a cocktail approach with a fundamental disease-modifying drug and then these other, um, other aspects that I mentioned probably, you know, or some combination of that, obviously tailored to the individual patient, seems the way things would be going. Okay. Well, very interesting. Now, the um, the best place for people to get more information on your work would be promiseneurosciences.com, and promise, um, drop the E at the end. So it's P-R-O-M-I-S, and then neuro. Yeah sciences.com and um, yep. they, you have some videos and things on there and some presentations I mean there's there's a lot of information that people can can gleam off your site in terms of what you're doing and and so forth Any, yes. anything else that you want to plug we've got about um, five minutes left here well, just a couple of things I'd like to say. One, just specifically mm-hmm. about our website and our company. I think that's a great place to go. Uh, there's a magic whiteboard presentation there that's about a minute and a half. You know, the whiteboard is, is you have this hand drawing very fast on the whiteboard and the text. That goes over the three types of amyloid beta I talked about and the root cause being the toxic misfolded form. That's so just a nice place to start to re-anchor that thought. Um, and that's really sort of uh, what's special about what we do and what the field is doing now is highly selective targeting uh, of, of, of the right thing. And it's taken, a, you know, as I said, 15, 20 years and a few billion dollars of failed trials and partially successful trials and what looks like a success now with aducanumab to, to finally learn all of that. So, so that's one of my first messages to all of us is we've got to learn from the past and be open-minded, uh, and that's the drug development uh, process. It, it, it really is. Learning uh, from, you know, actually, one of the issues is, 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 you know, a lot of the animal models of Alzheimer's disease that were developed, they were developed as plaque models. Um, mm-hmm. So, but now that we know the plaque's not really the underlying driver, so what you learn from those models is, is, is not very much. 
where we really learned it from the human trials, which obviously humans, I don't want to say humans are models, but human, uh, you know, the human animal is, is, is obviously the best place to study uh, human disease and you know, potential uh, drugs that can affect it. So that's another important learning is, is that you know, animal models are not very predictive in this case because they were, they were based on a hypothesis that was incorrect or only partially correct. So, so, so that's important uh, finding as well. The last point I would like to point out, though, is that I really hope, hope on the horizon. Um, we're, we're very excited as, you know, people in the field, like many others, about aducanumab, uh, Biogen's drug, which I mentioned, uh, you know, we should be seeing their, fi- their phase three results in 2020. Um, we believe it's got a very good chance, others as well, you know, other experts believe it's got a very good chance of approval and coming to market. So that's great. That's real hope on the horizon in the near term. And we believe with our approach of entering the clinic in 2019, we can follow on with a a program that, uh, if you like, addresses the one weak point of aducanumab, the side effect, because it's related to busting, you know, targeting plaque, and go up to much higher doses and have even greater effectiveness. And finally, to conclude, um, that the most important thing is, is, is to get to a qualified center early uh, for proper diagnosis and treatment, I'm sure, and I know you've had other um, uh, programs uh, and discussions about the things you can do that are important uh, whether or not you have drugs that are, you know, that are effective or you're in a clinical trial. We know there are a lot of things that can, you know, help sustain good mental health and certainly a number of things that if you don't do them are, are really deleterious, like withdrawing, you know, withdrawing from company, not being socially active, not being engaged. There, there are a lot of things that are obviously easy to say but hard to do but nevertheless essential for, for good mental health. So I'd say if we put all of that together – we have promised really see hope on the horizon and we want to be part of the solution and we think we're on track to do that. And I close with those comments if you'll allow me. Oh, that's, that is wonderful. I, I so appreciate your time today. This hour just um, blew by so fast. It always does. It you did. Know, I, I, yep. Yep. I, I love to learn and you, you spoke in everyday language. So it was easy for us. Sometimes I'll have researchers on and, and it's, it's hard to understand exactly what they're saying, but you used a lot of, of metaphors and explaining things, and um, it was uh, it was very very helpful. So again, I I appreciate all the work that that you and Promise are doing, and um, we wish you the greatest success. And and we really appreciate your attitude that failure is just really one step closer to success too. I think that's something that we we all need to adapt to in all of our lives. Um, we have to. Re- reframe you know what is failure and why is it important to us and and how can we use yeah. it to our advantage and it sounds like you guys really have that um at your heart um understanding the, the benefits of failure again it's it's not the end goal but you know it's not a wash either there are, are great lessons to be learned um, to be able to move forward with that so um thank you again dr goldstein for for all of your time with us today do appreciate it and um, please keep us posted uh as as that trial gets put together you know we would love to talk with you further about helping you be able to push that out um to have as great great of success as, as possible because we need you guys. Well, thank you. <laughs> we, yeah. I, no, I'd look, I very much look forward to that and, you know, staying in touch with you and your listeners, uh, you know, with, with, with some of the updates. So thank you for this opportunity. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Um, in closing, I'm going to shout out to a couple other companies here. Uh, for those of you who are a little bit nervous about uh, maybe having a loved one or a client who might wander, you might want to check in to the call alert center. They have one specifically for dementia. Um, but you also, I mean, if you have children or pets or college students or, or just travel, um, the Call Alert Center can can help you um, stay protected just in case uh, that incident would happen where someone would go missing. And if you go to alzheimerspeaks.com on our homepage, you'll get a discount of 20% when you sign up for that. And it's under like $15 a year, but it's just one of those things that helps you prepare. Uh, Same with the Roberto app, which measures brain function through video engagement. It's really a a cool tool to be able to use. Again, go to alzheimerspeaks.com on our homepage and you'll get information uh, regarding that as well. And the last uh, two I want to shout out to is the Alzheimer's Research and Prevention Foundation. 
if you're looking for a holistic mode, that's a great route to go. Check out, um, I'll just go to alzheimersprevention.org. And then the last is the Care to Plan Dementia Resource Directory, which is in beta testing. And again, if you go to alzheimerspeaks.com and go to our resource tab, you'll find more information out on that as well. Have a blessed week, and we'll talk with you all soon. Thanks so much, everyone, for joining us. And don't forget to uh, click and share and like and help us spread the word. Bye now. It's time to rethink, renew, and reimagine retirement. Hey, everybody. Jared Sebesta here, host of Retire Repurposed. Now, this podcast is about the non-financial parts of retirement, which many times can be even more challenging than the financial. We believe retirement is not the end, rather the beginning of what could be the most impactful, purposeful, and fulfilling season of a person's life. So don't retire. Become repurposed. To listen now, search Retire Repurposed on your favorite podcast platform, Senior Resource, or Life Audio.